0: Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gallup, and welcome to The Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'd like to thank Samit Shah for introducing me to our guest today, Sophie Bacalar. Sophie is the founder of Fable, an e-commerce pet store that helps pets and their humans lead healthier, happier lives through better design. She is also a venture partner at Collaborative Fund, a seed stage fund that focuses on growth of the creative class and the concept of collaborative consumption. Some of their investments include Reddit, Impossible Foods, Tala, Lyft, and Kickstarter. Previously, Sophie was a credit trader in a large hedge fund and founded Charts. A company specializing in image processing software for charts, which was acquired in 2016. In this episode, we're gonna be primarily focused on Sophie's experience on both sides of the table as an investor with Collaborative Fund and as a founder of Fable. It was really fun chatting with Sophie, and I really hope you all enjoy. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking time out of your very busy schedule. How are you today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I'm, I'm really excited.
0: What attracted you initially to this wonderful world of startups and venture capital?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that's probably most different about me or is most unusual about me is that I have a really high sort of risk tolerance, really high Tolerance for pain. Um, I really like experimenting. I really like doing things that have high potential reward, but very low likelihood of success. And I think that's something that's sort of always just been intrinsically true about me. Um, And even growing up, I think my my siblings and my brother and I in particular, you know, we were always sort of imagining ways to make the world better, even in very small ways, you know, like desk set up or chair set up that we have for playing video games isn't optimized. How could, how could we create a system that's more optimized or this, french fry delivery system at the fast food counters and optimize how could we optimize that so just always thinking about ways to change the world in small ways and sometimes in much bigger ways so maybe it was inevitable I guess that I ended up in startups where the where I think risk tolerance is a very very important thing that people in this in this world need to have particularly on the venture side but I actually started my career in hedge funds as a trader I really made a conscious decision to sort of leave a career I was already established in and move into this space, into the startup and venture world. And I think that was more driven by just the desire to be very impactful in what I do and really see the see measurable result of what I was doing on a day-to-day basis, which is something you don't really get in trading, where you're fairly far removed from um, what you're doing, <laughs> from the results of what you're doing.
0: What I also really appreciate about your background is that you come from a you know a lot of the people i have on this show the majority either come from a finance background like like you with trading or as an operational background as a founder which which you also have experience with digit chart and so what were what were some of the learnings and why did you find digit chart and then some of the learnings that transferred and influenced you on the other side as a venture capitalist
1: yeah in terms of why we started digit i think it was a bit of a classic founder story and that I didn't mean to. Um, I was working on some software just to make my own life easier as a trader, basically image processing software for charts and reverse engineered uh, chart images into data. And that was not something I really thought about turning into a business, although certainly for years in back of my head, I had always dreamed about making that transition into the startup world and getting to be an entrepreneur and sort of take on that high risk tolerance or use that high risk tolerance and take on something that was a little bit more ambitious. But it was actually my partner who was a management consultant at the time and realized that there was a larger business opportunity and what I had made or what I was working on making who said, you know, let's turn this into a business. Let's see what we can do. And it was kind of the perfect excuse for me to leave trading and try my hand at something a little bit more required a little bit more of a personal touch and a little bit more of a, again, that pain tolerance. But I definitely use that experience. I'd use that experience so much as a venture capitalist, as an investor. I truly don't know how I could possibly invest effectively without having had that experience. I'm always amazed at people who can go straight into investing without having really much operating experience because you know, it's certainly tactically and operationally, it teaches you a lot about the mechanics of starting a company. It builds out your network so you know who to go to in terms of service providers and people who can assist your portfolio companies in building their businesses. But it also, I think more more than anything, most importantly, it teaches you empathy. I think being truly empathetic to founders and really understanding how much they put at risk when they start a business and how much support they need emotionally and tactically is really important. And just understanding timing and time pressure and all those little nuances that I think we can talk about and I can explain to somebody who hasn't gone through it, but you really need to have lived it to, to, to intrinsically understand what it's like, I think.
0: What excites you about collaborative and investing at the seed stage?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to clarify, I'm a venture partner at Collaborative right now. So I was full-time and right now I'm not actively sourcing new deals, but still definitely involved with the team, involved with companies that I invested in previously, but again, just not full-time at the moment. Um, in terms of how I started at Collaborative Fund, it's a bit of a long, windy story, um, but I... As we were building the last company at Digit Charts and we were in the process of selling that business, um, I took a little backpacking trip around the world, sort of a cliche founder story, I guess, but took the better part of a year to do some backpacking and really made me reevaluate sort of my own consumer behavior, what was happening in consumer trends, in particular, this sort of conscious capitalism concept of people, or, sorry, conscious consumerism concept of people being a lot more thoughtful about what they were buying and spending more for fewer, better things, essentially. And I started basically doing some research on who else was thinking about this space, who was thinking about consumerism from the angle of doing better in the world. Um, Obviously, I had a finance background. And so having had the finance background and the startup background, it, you know, was, was uh, germinating in my mind a little bit as, that venture capital could be an interesting sort of combination of the two um, as a path forward as sort of a next step. But I hadn't really thought about getting into venture until I came across collaborative funds. So I didn't apply to any other venture funds. I wasn't looking to get into venture capital. I really fell in love with collaborative fund and collaborative fund's mission around pushing the world forward, investing companies that are doing some good in the world, companies that are being thoughtful about how they build their businesses. And that's what I wanted to be involved in. It wasn't really venture that that got me excited. Um, And so I had read some articles and some tweets that Craig Shapiro, the founder of Collaborative Fund, had put out. And really thought that we were thinking about the world in a similar way, um, just thinking about consumerism in a in a similar way. And I cold tweeted him. I, I think I cold tweeted him several times <laughs> before he responded, and just said, "We need to meet. I need to talk to you. I'm so passionate about what you're doing, and I want to be part of it." Um, and so that's ultimately how I cracked in. Uh, venture capital is obviously a very bubbly space. It can be very difficult to infiltrate if you're not already somehow in it and i'm a big proponent of, of being pushy and sending those cold emails and cold tweets because obviously it worked for me and um, i'm very happy that it did in terms of what excites me um, about the seed stage i think you know obviously seed is getting more competitive rounds are bigger they're moving earlier it's getting riskier um but i but i still love it you know i think i that's where the big crazy ideas are it's it's where there are basically no limits to a founder's imagination. It's where you hear the sort of world changing uh, big, big ideas. And so I, I still think it's it's super exciting. Again, going back to having some risk tolerance or pain tolerance, I think you need that. I think you also need a lot of optimism. Um, you need to be able to look at not where the world is now, but where it could be. And I think that's what. It always makes me so passionate about seed. You know, I've generally been fairly focused on consumer brands, CPG, retail, e-commerce. And obviously that market has changed so, so much in the three years since I first really started investing in the space in earnest. The My thesis has changed completely. The kinds of companies I look at has changed completely. But I do still feel like there's a huge opportunity there. But when I first really started looking at the space, it was Basically, a month or two, I think, before Dollar Shave Club acquisition, which was a pretty big inflection point in the industry because it a you know, very large acquisition of a D 2 C2C brand. Since then, you know, we've seen an uptick in acquisitions, a fall in acquisitions, some big public failures, some crazy surprising success stories. Obviously, digital marketing has been a huge huge puzzle piece that has changed the industry. I think it's still really exciting. I think it's just different. A major thesis that I have, at least, is that branding is a hugely, hugely powerful asset for a company. I think it's often massively undervalued, especially by investors. And I think there's still a big opportunity in creating culturally impactful brands that really, I think, have some scale to them.
0: What excites you about consumer? Because a digit chart, for example, that wasn't a consumer brand uh, brand at all right
1: no it's enterprise facts It could not have been farther away farther away from what i invest in or what i what i do now again going back to sort of that trip that i took and just really thinking about consumer behavior from a much more macro level i think that's what excites me the most is really thinking about big macro changes and how we live our lives and how that impacts of our day-to-day and I think there are so many macro changes going on right now you know everything from just demographic shifts of people moving more into cities and getting married later and having kids later and living alone longer to our increased focus on health and wellness I mean obviously that's played out a lot over the last few years but I still think there's huge opportunity there to how we shop how we purchase product, whether it's online or in retail, and what retail could look like in the future, to how we work. That's another area that I'm really interested in, you know, flexible work and remote work. How does that impact our day-to-day lives? I think having founded an enterprise or having co-founded an enterprise SaaS business before, I, I had a desire to sort of do the extreme opposite, right? I loved working on Digit. It was Incredibly intellectually stimulating, incredibly interesting. But the impact didn't feel quite as big as getting to work on and look at, at products and companies that really impact our day to day lives. That was something I had a bit of a hankering for after after looking at a data visualization software for a few years. So I think that's kind of what personally attracted me to the consumer. And then from an investment perspective, it, it just felt like there was so much changing, both in terms of how companies were being built. At the time, D2C was still, still mason. It still wasn't, you know, a term in the general lexicon. So it felt like it was something that was new and emerging and exciting. And then also that there were these big macro shifts happening that create this big opportunity to get to be involved in a company in any way, even as sort of a passive investor that has a big impact on all of our daily lives I think is amazing. That's such a such a great thing to get to be part of.
0: What are like specific consumer insights that you were most focused on?
1: Yeah, I think the one of the big ones was definitely health and wellness. So consumers increased interest in taking care of their bodies, taking, you know, care of their fitness. I think that's nutrition. I think those are all things that we Saw a big opportunity, and and certainly saw a, a shift in consumer behavior just starting to happen. Obviously, it, it we've we've seen that over the last couple of years. There's been a big shift in consumer behavior around health and wellness, but it still feels early. It still feels sort of niche and urban. And I think there's big opportunity to expand that beyond just the sort of urban, urban millennial set into a national, international trend around people putting a lot more focus on what they consume and being much more conscious about what they consume for their own well-being. And then retail, again, is something that we've focused on quite a bit. It's something that I don't have a firm enough thesis on just yet. I feel like we're still kind of all figuring it out together. What is the future of how people shop? What is the future of how people uh, purchase things and do research around products and are more conscious about what they consume how, how does that look and i think part of that could be social shopping is something i'm i'm very interested in we've seen a lot happen uh, overseas in social shopping but not a ton yet uh, domestically and i think there's still again we're still kind of figuring out what does consumer behavior look like around us shopping in groups what are the efficiencies around us making purchasing decisions as a, as a community or as a group and then again flexible work I think is something that really interests me it's consumer behavior that is still very new that there's such a big uptick in part time work flexible work remote work how does that change how we consume and what we consume even just in terms of you know we, we might not need so much work clothing <laughs> what, what are we going to be wearing on a day-to-day basis if people aren't going into the office as much um what does commuting look like all those kind of things i think it's so fascinating to kind of try to imagine in the future, what our day-to-day lives could look like um, and, and how that impacts what we purchase or what consumer brands we support, what services we use. And I think that's where there's so much opportunity in this space still.
0: Social shopping is, is one that I'm particularly fascinated as well. What are some qualities that you like to see from founders? And can you can you maybe describe a day in the life of your due diligence process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In terms of look foremost in founders, Think certainly optimism is a really important one. You know, this is such a difficult, it's such a difficult thing to start a business. It's so arduous that you really need to have some optimism to get you through the pain, painful parts. But then I, I also think that you obviously you need to know what you don't know. And so some amount of humility is very important. So I would say optimism coupled with humility is, is crucial. And then of course, creativity imagination somebody who thinks outside the box who's not going to be wedded to legacy ways of of doing things is really important that's how you get the truly i try to avoid the word disruptive but the truly industry disruptive concepts come from people who are really creative and out-of-the-box thinkers um and then scrappiness i'm a big fan a big proponent of scrappiness it's something that i follow very much um I have followed and do follow as an operator as well I think it's it's very easy to build a business uh, if you have unlimited amount of capital and resources but it's often not a good business and if you can force yourself to be scrappy and you know make the hard decisions particularly when it comes to spending capital I think that leads to much better business long term so I think that was four optimism humility Creativity and and scrappiness are probably the four that I I am the biggest proponent of, although obviously there are tons of factors that go into what makes a good founder and every good founder is a little bit different. And then in terms of due diligence process, you know, it's it's so hard because it really is very stage and category specific. I think the way that I would look at whether or not a company is a good investment or a good opportunity, it's pretty ad hoc. I don't have like a formula I can give, but certainly doing the diligence on the founder, you know, references, background, understanding if they have those qualities that I think make for a really good founder, that's a super high priority. And that's why meeting in person sometimes, many, not many times, but certainly multiple times is really important. And then market sizing, trends, competitors, all that kind of analysis is really important. I think because i am sort of been unusual within the venture world and that I've stayed fairly focused on a relatively narrow investment set, it's been very helpful because you do get some intuition around what's happening in these various markets and what the sizes are and what the trends are. Um, But you still want to put as much effort into really, truly wrapping your head around that as you possibly can. And then with consumer products in particular, it's really important to understand what is a realistic path to profitability? You know, in general, companies that we see at the seed stage are not going to be profitable. That would be very unusual. But understanding what is a realistic way to get there, because certainly when you think years down the road, either when you think years down the road to some sort of exit or just building a successful business involves making it profitable. So, really understanding that is important. Uh, But ultimately, at the seed stage, there's so little data, there's so little to work off of that the diligence process can be a a lot of, do I believe in this founder? Do I believe in this idea? Do I think there's a market opportunity? And then there's not a ton else to go off of, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, if you're like me and you kind of like that that unknown piece.
0: Those are excellent traits, and I appreciate you kind of listing out those four. How important is it for a founder to have market expertise in an area when it comes to consumer. I had a couple other investors on the show who talked about how in consumer, it's everybody thinks that kind of they're an expert in consumer. How do you go about to see, all right, this founder, there's no one else that could found this company and, and can solve this problem?
1: It's a good question. I think in terms of consumer is very unique in that it's so operationally intensive. It's so supply chain intensive, and you need to really understand how products gets made, what that process looks like. It doesn't necessarily have to be the founder who has that expertise, I think, as long as they have access or they have somebody on the senior management team who really, really understands how products get made, basically. Uh, I think that certainly is crucial and something that I look for early on because I'm very familiar with the, the pain of getting product made and you definitely want somebody who has some industry expertise there. But in terms of having a founder who has worked in their specific category before, I don't know that that's necessarily a prerequisite just because I again, what we're looking for is people are really thinking outside the box and I think sometimes if you're too deeply ingrained in a in a industry or a, a, a product category already, you might not be that person who's really rethinking, the way that product or category could look. So yes, it's it's very operation intensive. So somebody who's starting a quick service restaurant, for instance, having some experience in quick service restaurants, of course, that would be super helpful. And somebody who's starting a consumer product, having some experience in consumer brands or consumer products, I think is very helpful. I don't know that they need to have built their career around those things or have done the you know, been in a specific product that they're building or the specific restaurant that their restaurant concept that they're starting. Because sometimes having somebody from to a totally different, somebody who can bring a totally different perspective is, is really helpful, actually.
0: What really stuck with me is in consumer because it's so supply chain and operationally intensive that you need to understand the full vertical. And that's something that. We actually haven't really touched on or covered. We've just kind of just said market expertise, but what does it actually entail? So I really appreciate you saying that. Now let's talk a little bit about Fable. What compelled you to make that leap and start Fable?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Fable is a premium pet goods company. We make all sorts of products for pets. It's a lifestyle brand built around the pet space. And, you know, it's always a sort of windy road to get to starting a company. But I think most importantly, I am a design nerd at heart. I love design. I love brand. So does my part, my business partner, Jeremy. And that's something that I got, to, I got to scratch that itch a little bit as an investor. But I found increasingly as I was meeting with these incredible founders every single day, you know, multiple pitch meetings a day with all these incredible ideas, I just started to get that itch again to get back into operating. and my hand at building something. So that was sort of building slowly in the back of my head to, to get my hands dirty and get back into designing something. I'm a huge, huge, huge animal lover. So is my business partner. It's something that we've always talked about. I think we always imagined doing something for pets or for animals, but uh, not necessarily what we ended up doing with Gable. The path to um, realizing that there was an opportunity in this space certainly came from my experience as a consumer brand investor. You know, again, the things that really excite me are these sort of massive demographic shifts, these big macro changes in the world. And one of the ones a couple of years ago that I was really paying attention to was just, you know, people getting married later and having kids later and getting pets earlier was the big boom that we've seen in the pet category is driven by actual changes in the not just a trend that people all of a sudden are getting more pets and caring more about their pets. It's actually driven by changes in the world. And so that was really interesting to me. Um, I was seeing a lot of companies in the food space and in the services space, that, at least at that, at that point, when we uh, first started thinking about Fable, there weren't really any companies approaching the problem from a product design standpoint. And so you know, of, of course, now there have been a few companies that have come out since then that have launched with product, with, with pet products. But at the time, we just felt like there was a, a very obvious hole in the market. You know, people are clearly paying up for premium premium food products for their pets. They're increasingly paying for services like Wagon Rover and um, other premium services that really highlight the fact that, We love our pets and we care about them and want to do what's best for them. But for the most part, products hadn't changed in decades. We were basically using the same low-quality leashes and collars and beds and all that kind of thing. So that's kind of the framework for how I was thinking about the opportunity in this space. I originally was looking at it more from an investment perspective. How can I find a company to invest in in this space? This is an opportunity that I see. You know, I was seeing truly dozens of pet food businesses. And it's like, why am I not seeing any pet products businesses and was looking for an investment. But then that sort of itch in the back of my head to get back into operating and my partner's love of design and my love of design, I think all came together to make me wanna do it ourselves. I I think it just felt like everything came together, everything coalesced to a perfect opportunity to start the business.
0: I read an article, I think probably a couple months ago about how young people are looking to live in or, or, or if they can afford to buy a a house, not so much to raise children yet, but because of the yard for their dog and, and, and for their pet, it is an interesting shift that, that, that we are seeing. I quite agree. What are some of the questions that you asked yourself before founding Fable? I mean, you talked about how you thought there was an opportunity there, and I love that you. It seems like you didn't find, you weren't able to find a startup that was doing what you thought needed to be done, and was solving a problem on the dying standpoint. So you said, "All right, you know what? Let's just let's solve that problem. I'm going to solve that problem." Uh, but what? I'm I'm sure there was there were a ton of questions that you asked yourself uh, before taking that leap. So what what were some of the questions for those that are looking to start a B two C company and kind of identify if it's an opportunity or not just how how do you look at the market
1: yeah i think one of the first questions i always ask is how can i test this as cheaply as possible how can i test this theory that i have that there is an opportunity in this space as efficiently and cheaply as possible and as it, you know consumer is much harder thing to test obviously than software because you have to make a physical product and it's it's much more challenging than just, oh, you should scrap that. Not that software is not challenging. That's not what I mean at all, but it, it's it's a hard thing to test. But I do think you can test almost anything for you know twenty thousand dollars, I think, is a reasonable benchmark even in the consumer space. Um, as long as it's not you know super technical hardware. you can generally create a prototype, create a website, and kind of get a sense of whether or not there is an opportunity there. We ran surveys, we created, uh, you know, very small batches of our first round of products to test and see if there was appetite for them. Um, But I I think it is a very much a learning process. Um, One of the questions you should ask, obviously, is, is anybody else able to do this? And I think in consumer, that's a really hard question because the answer is generally yes you will have competitors. It's almost unheard of. I am struggling to think of a company, even one that I'm very passionate about where they don't have any competitors. You know, everybody, even if it's a very technical product, it's very hard to build IP around products. People can generally, generally replicate what you're doing. So the question becomes, is there an opportunity here? Can we test that there's an opportunity here? Do we have the capacity to be nimble and make changes as we go, so that we can really create an optimal business model here, even in light of the fact that we know there will be competitors. Can we think outside the box, not just in terms of products, but in terms of how we're gonna market, in terms of how we're gonna distribute, in terms of just rethinking business models in general. And obviously it's still early for us, so we're still thinking through all of those questions, but uh, you know, I think the answer is yes. I think my partner and I are creative people and we like to look at problems from different angles. And that first question mark of, is there an opportunity here? And can we test that in an efficient way? I think we've checked that one off and now we're in the midst of thinking, how can we really think outside the box in terms of product market and distribution?
0: What's something that you would change when it came to venture capital or fundraising?
1: There are a few things. I think the thing that immediately comes to mind is just how bubbly it is. Um, I'm certainly not the first and only person to talk about this, but it's a very small, clubby industry. It's very hard to break into if you aren't connected somehow to it, and once you're in, it's very much a system it's a very network driven system where everyone's kind of sharing everything and that that can be good it can be a very friendly way to work but it also means we're often passing around the same ideas and the same concerns and the same biases which I don't think is good because sometimes it means that we're all missing the bigger opportunity that startups come in with a, again, I hate this word, but a disruptive idea, and we all have the same bias that we're passing around and, and don't see it. So that I think is the main thing. I'm very lucky that I ended up able to crack the crack the bubble and get in, but it, I, I know plenty of super qualified, really tenacious people who have struggled to to get in the door just because it is so it's tightly wound, and it's we could do an entire podcast about how to. Cold, cold people because cold email people because it's a topic I feel very passionately about. I think it's the only way that this changes is if we're all receptive to those cold outreaches. But in general, I think one of the main objectives should be being really targeted in what you're asking for. Just being concise, being really specific. I do find in general that venture people in the venture community do actually want to be helpful. They do want to pay it forward to some extent. But often you get these cold emails where it's like, can we meet for coffee? And there's no clear objective in that. I think if you have a very specific ask and you're very to the point about it, that's much more likely to yield results than just sort of an open-ended, can we grab coffee or jump on a 15-minute call? Because we're VCs are so their time is so precious and they're so protective of their time that open-ended questions like that I think don't really yield results quite as well. It's just about being very, very targeted and thoughtful and specific and and not having batch cold emails, that's one thing I really think is a mistake. You shouldn't have a template that you send to every VC and it's the same thing. Spend ten minutes reading, you know, a couple blog posts or reading through their Twitter to actually Know what they're interested in and have something targeted to say. Because the easiest way for a VC to ignore your email is to feel if they feel like it's a templated batch email that you're you're not even really paying attention to, then they're going to be able to say, "Oh well, I don't need to respond to this because they're sending it to a dozen other people."
0: Um, and you know, just do your diligence and research. I think for founders, you know, you shouldn't just reach out to any VC as well looking for funding. Think about what types of companies that they've backed? If it's in the similar space as you, and really, and also what what stage they're in? Are they late stage? Are they early stage? Uh, so um, I think that's incredibly important. Um, and I and and I thought you said it uh, extremely well. Thank you. What is one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally, and one of your favorite books that has impacted you professionally?
1: There's certainly a lot of recency bias in the personal in the personal book answer because I recently read The Overstory by Richard Powers and just absolutely loved it. Um, The triumph of nature is just, it it was very impactful to me and it it was very inspiring and really made me think again more about my own consumer behavior and my own commitment to conservation and the environment. And he's an incredible writer. So I highly, highly recommend it. And then in terms of professionally, the the true and honest answer is probably um, Mornings on Horseback, uh, which is a book about Theodore Roosevelt, uh, largely because it's what catalyzed me, I think, to quit the hedge fund world and start a company and backpack around the world and really just instilled in me, reinstilled in me a childhood love of adventure. I think for whatever reason, that book just really impacted me. I do read a lot of industry books, obviously, about startups in BC. It's rare that one has a really big impact on me. In general, I think I, I prefer blogs and podcasts for specific industry-oriented advice and, and information, just because I think sometimes, if I can be totally honest, those um, industry books tend to be about 65% longer than they need to be and aren't necessarily full of, full of very actionable advice. So the books that have had more impact on me are are not necessarily industry related, but just make me think a little bit more about my career and my professional aspirations from a more theoretical level.
0: I love that you mentioned that that you're able to sneak in Theodore Roosevelt into the conversation. I love it. What is uh, one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did?
1: There are tons of them, of course. I mean, we look at so many companies and invest in such a small percentage. There's a, a, a huge running list of companies I wish I had invested in. The one that just immediately pops to mind is a company called Imperfect Produce. They sell directly to consumers um, food that food waste, food that or food that could become food waste. Explaining it very poorly, but um, I think most people are probably familiar with Imperfect Produce and companies that tackle food waste from uh, Consumer brand perspective. Obviously, they have a lot of competitors now. It's not like a, you know, not an obvious home run necessarily. But I think they're doing super well, and it's more that it's exactly the kind of company that I want to invest in. I think the concept is very, very beautiful. It's something I'm always looking for, which is this win-win-win scenario, right, where you know, consumer can get cheaper produce and a, it's better for the environment and the company can be more profitable you have an idea that I think is is really it's an elegant solution to a macro problem like food waste so the kind of company that I love and is something that I'm passionate about is the food waste issue and they're doing very well I think they have a great brand so all of those things, I'm like, uh, I need, it just immediately comes to my mind as one that I wish I'd invested in. I should look back at my at my notes as to why we did not invest in them. I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> Probably, inevitably, a terrible, silly reason, as all our passes are. I'm sure.
0: I also really appreciate the passion about food waste, and and of course, you know, wanting to do better for the world. What is one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies.
1: Test your concept as early as possible, or as cheaply as possible, I think is important. It's, I think it can be kind of overwhelming when you're creating a product and it feels like I need a million dollars even to just know if this works. You can generally, with prototyping, with sort of uh, simple websites and with a little bit of digital marketing, you can get some sense of whether or not there's an opportunity. Don't be afraid of competition. There's going to be a ton of competition. It is inevitable. Again, I do think brand can be a huge moat. So being as uh, what's the word, not offensive, but as, as bold as you can be when it comes to brand and really trying to do something different, I think is extremely important. But in the startup space, at least, there will be a lot of competitors. Don't be afraid of those competitors because ultimately, startups have a very small market share of the consumer landscape. You're not competing against those other companies. You're competing against legacy companies and, you know, the in the case of CPG, Unilever and Johnson Johnson and P&G's of the world and their own brand, which you have an edge in. <laughs> you certainly have an edge in because they're not thinking about the consumer landscape in the same way a startup would be. So
0: I appreciate what you said, how there's always going to be competition and thinking, how can you, how can you test your hypothesis? as cheaply as possible. Sophie, this has been absolutely terrific. Thank you so much for taking the time in your busy, busy schedule at Q4 for, for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This was really fun. I um, hope you got some interesting things to tell your listeners. And um, yeah, I had a really good time chatting about all things startup in BC with you. Um, so anytime.
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Sophie, and I really appreciate her taking the time and sharing about her experience on both sides of the table, investing and fundraising. You can follow Sophie at Sophie Bacalar. It'll be in the show notes. If you'd like to follow along behind the scenes of the show, you can also follow me at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit the ConsumerVC.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, if you could please leave a review on the Apple podcast app, that would be simply terrific each review increases the exposure of the show if there's a question you'd like me to ask our guests or if you're working on something really cool and innovative feel free to dm me on twitter thanks again for listening folks and until next time